Well, the topic uh, I was assigned uh, to give you uh, this morning in this hour is suicide. Uh, number one reason for suicide in the United States is major depression. Shouldn't be uh, a surprise necessarily. Uh, but it's not, um, actually the majority of cases of suicide, uh, even though it's the number one reason, is not major depression alone. 35% of suicidal cases are uh, directly related to major depression and its complications. What other things, if, what's the other 65%? Anyone want to guess what other things besides depression might lead to suicide? Other common causes are blatantly going against conscience such as murder. Have you heard of murder suicides? Uh, pretty common after an individual murders somebody, they start contemplating about what they just did, and they also contemplate over the fact that they are going to be caught and that they are going to have to go through significant turmoil in the prison system and court systems, etc. and they often then point the weapon at themselves and do themselves in. And so uh, uh, blatantly going against conscience will do it. Uh, betrayal, when someone uh, blatantly betrays someone who's in the right, and then they realize the consequences of that. Can we think of anyone in scripture who fit that role? That's right. Uh, Judas, after he realized the consequences of his action in betrayal, actually went quite quickly uh, threw the money back and then killed himself. Fornication or adultery that becomes public, suicidal thoughts can come about. And you are um, hearing more about this uh, in a public uh, uh, venue, but uh, there's uh, people that, uh, one uh, girl that um, was a very um, godly girl uh, that ac actually uh, is someone that um, uh, I was uh, acquainted with beforehand and also, of course, uh, during and afterwards. Uh, met an individual in church who was a, uh, uh, in, uh, who had just gotten out of prison. And of course, uh, one of the um, things that ought to uh, help uh, individuals along, part of what we talked about last time, is frontal lobe. When someone just comes out of prison, is that a good time to start a romantic relationship with them? No. Uh, prisoners are trained con artists, uh, many of them, and uh, they can be very good at conning individuals, etc. It's good to give them at least a year uh, or more in, the, um, in society, etc., and see how those decisions are being made. But this individual was successful in conning this, uh, this beautiful young uh, girl. And uh, before uh, you know it, she, he had also conned her into that adulterous relationship and then posted it in a proud manner on his Facebook and told the world about it. And of course, she at that point in time was seriously contemplating ending her own life uh, as, a, as a result. Fortunately, uh, she did not and she went through an appropriate um, uh, experience and treatment program that is, makes her far from that. Um, today. Increased risk when there's a perception of severe shame or guilt as well. 
And so that's where a lot of these suicides come in that are not necessarily intricately related to major depression. And then there's other diseases that increase the risk, such as bipolar disorder. Uh, can increase it, particularly when the individual goes into the depressive phase of bipolar disorder. Schizophrenia also has an increased risk, and then there are other uh, less common diseases. Uh, of course, it's very high among Iraq soldiers uh, and those returning from Iraq. There's been a number of studies uh, showing how high it is in our military right now, and we'll talk about reasons uh, for that here in a little bit. It's the eighth leading cause of death in the United States still in the top 10 causes of death in the U.S. in all age groups, but it's the third leading cause of death in young people ages 10 to 24. And uh, so it is, um, anyone want to know what the number one cause of death is in ages 10 to 24? Uh, it's actually accidents uh, are the number one cause. And number two cause, cancer. Cancer is a pediatric illness. It's not just an adult uh, illness. And so cancer is number two, and number three is suicide. But uh, when you see a young person in a funeral home, a third most likely chance is suicide. And it's often under the radar screen when an individual dies of suicide uh, in this country, they'll end up as an obituary, but it won't say anything about why they died. And it won't be, there won't be an article about it or anything like that. Uh, and so it's often under the radar screen uh, as a result, but it's twice as frequent in our society, uh, twice more common than homicide. And we know murder is far too frequent in this country. Murder tends to get the headlines, so there'll be an article about that. But for every murder that is committed, there have been two suicides uh, in that area. And again, often under the radar screen. Feelings of hopelessness is the best correlate of imminent suicidal action. Feelings of what? Hopelessness. And so if you can give individuals a reason to have hope, as uh, Don McIntosh mentioned, a lot of times uh, your friends are going to come to you with thoughts uh, like this before they come to a professional. Uh, if you can give them reasons to have hope, uh, that will help out a lot. In fact, our depression recovery uh, series, many of you are aware that we have a, uh, a residential depression recovery program plus one that can be run in a church setting or in a community center setting. If they just get to that first session, the info session, or if you can just download that section, that either DVD from the internet or just get that one session, uh, often you will um, save uh, that suicidal death because they will find out that there's a whole lot of reasons to have hope, whole lots of things that, uh, that they've never tried before that have a very positive effect as far as brain function is concerned. Other factors are impaired judgment. Turns out half of all young people who commit suicide, a little over half, have a mind-altering substance on board that is suppressing the frontal lobe of their brain. What's the most common? Alcohol is the most common. And, uh, but it could be something else, such as uh, cocaine or amphetamines or narcotics or something. Uh, they often have a mind-altering substance impairing their judgment. Uh, and then very frequently, they have impaired, what? Coping skills. And this is, uh, there have been studies showing the dramatic um, worsening of young people's coping skills today versus a generation ago. And even two generations ago, the coping skills were even better. 
Uh, and how they measure this out is they uh, take people in certain life events, for, for instance, that they've broken up with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and then have them talk about options, you know, as far as how to overcome this. And in today's young person, they're frequently, when things go bad in their life, they're frequently thinking of the option of suicide. Uh, where a generation ago it was, it, it, there had to be multiple, all sorts of bad things happening before they got to that. But one single very terrible event. And today, because of the lack of coping skills that, are, that, uh, that young people have due to an all-time low emotional intelligence, uh, we are seeing um, increasing thinking, at least contemplating, suicide. Uh, third factor is what? Impulsivity. Now, this is something that is uh, that's not necessarily understood by people who are not uh, who haven't been actively suicidal. Uh, but it was well described in San Francisco after the thousandth person committed suicide by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. It's still a way that people commit suicide today because it's only a four-foot fence there, and there's multiple lanes, and you can pull over and quickly make the jump. And uh, 20 people, it turns out, survived that jump after the thousandth person had committed suicide. And so one astute psychologist studied those 20 individuals that had survived the jump. Uh, those individuals had all gone through medical problems as a result of their jump. Many of them had lost limbs. You know, when you're that far off the water, it's like 400 feet. It's almost like you're hitting concrete. Uh, they just happened to land just right to not die. But most of them had compression fractures of their spine. Uh, they had shrunk a great deal. Many of them had been in ICU. In fact, virtually all of them had been in ICU for a long period of time. And then finally, they were able to get out and at least function uh, in, to some degree in society. But these 20 individuals were interviewed, and they were asked just three simple questions. Uh, do you wish that you would have not survived the jump? What do you think they answered to that? Yeah, actually they were glad that they survived. And so to make sure, there was a second question because a lot of people would think, you know, with their lives now worse, their lives all turned out to be worse, at least for a short time afterwards than before. And here they were suicidal. So to make sure, there was a second question that basically asked the same thing. So you realized that you made a mistake, was the second question. And all 20 of them said, yes, we realized we made a mistake. So then the third question was, when did you first realize that you had made the mistake? <laughs> Two thirds of them said, as soon as my feet had left the bridge. So now they're on their way down and they're saying, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> But for 99% of them, it was too late. And the effect of what they had done was lethal. And so it underscores the fact that uh, completed suicide is often a very impulsive event. A lot of people think that this person has systematically analyzed every aspect of their life and have concluded through careful, calm analysis that this is the best approach for them. And, and have thus taken that approach. Not true. Uh, there has not been that systematic type of analysis and a careful, calm approach. If there had been, it wouldn't have led to that, actually. And so it's often a very impulsive event. And of course, the complexity of this impulsivity 
is this. Antidepressants, the most commonly used antidepressants, worsen impulsivity before they improve depression. And that's why every one of these drugs has a black box warning on them if you look at the package insert saying, watch out, if anyone has suicidal tendencies, this may actually tip them over the edge. Well, they have depression, and so the doctor is trying to help them over their depression so they don't get suicidal, but yet the drug actually worsens their impulsivity, and thus it actually increases the risk of suicide for a while until the effects of the antidepressants seem to counteract that effect. About a year later, it's about even uh, in that effect. Uh, and so, we, really, we need to start thinking about alternative ways of treating depression besides things that are going to worsen impulsivity uh, if we're going to get a handle uh, of the third leading cause of death in young people. Fourth factor is isolation. Now, there's something that tends to occur. Uh, we call it the ABCs of cognitive behavioral therapy, but the A is the activating event. And I'll skip the B. The C is the consequence, emotional consequence. And a lot of people think their bad emotions are due to the events in their life. And they're ignoring the B part. It's really the, the perception, the belief combined with those events that lead to the bad emotional consequences. And so cognitive behavioral therapy has you reanalyze those beliefs. And so you can think true thoughts instead of distorted thoughts. But because individuals with depression think that the events in their life have caused it, what they tend to do is to minimize those events. And how do you minimize events? Get isolated. And so you get into a room all by yourself, and you darken the curtains, and you don't answer the phone, and it actually, does it help? <laughs> no. It actually worsens because it's not those events that have actually led them. It's the belief, it's those events combined with distorted thoughts that have led them to a poor consequence, emotional and behavioral. And so part of improving coping skills as well as improving isolation is to get people to analyze their thoughts. Uh, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, but actually we want them to get them connected. This is why getting them involved in your church group, in your peer group, uh, particularly if it's a positive uh, peer group is a very helpful thing. Trying to start a depression recovery program uh, in your area or just taking it to that particular person. And if you're taking it to that person, trying to get others involved, getting them part of a group activity is going to be very helpful in preventing uh, suicide. And then if they have a history of other mental illnesses we talked about earlier, that increases the risk. Well, I'm going to talk about several. Uh, the, the title that I was given to talk to you about uh, this morning was not only suicide, but answers from science and inspiration. We're going to turn to inspiration here. And boy, that really took off, didn't it? Uh, I copied this in from another presentation. So uh, let me just, uh, and I think it's going to go automatically. Yeah, it's going to go. Uh, this individual was tall, stunningly handsome, wealthy, and well-liked by the general public. So who was it? Saul before it goes into the, uh, the rest. And of course, to have one of those attributes, most men would be happy with. Uh, but this guy was not only tall, stunningly handsome is what the Hebrew states. Uh, and he was not only wealthy, but he was well-liked by the general public. And one of the reasons why he was well-liked is because Paul, Saul had a spirit of what? 
and a spirit of humility about him. He didn't actually even seek to be king. In fact, when they wanted him to anoint him king, he was hiding. You know, he didn't, didn't really want to be part of that. He had a humble nature about him, and thus he was uh, well-liked. Uh, he also had a lot of other great attributes. He demonstrated a gracious spirit toward those who conspired against him during the process of becoming king. Uh, his advisors told him, you better lash out at these people from Judah because they're going to come up again and cause you problems. And he said, no, leave them alone, no consequences, let's just let things take their course, which was the wise decision to make. He also scored tremendous victories against the Ammonites and Philistines, Israel's enemies who threatened the peace and welfare of God's people, was very courageous in going out to the peripheral aspects of Israel and saving them. And so why wouldn't King Saul feel just great? Had all those things going for him, but he began to suffer from depression. It's quite clear. And whenever depression comes about, it's a, there are causes underneath it. One of the causes going against his conscience by only partially obeying the commandments of God. And when we go against our conscience, there's something that happens to the frontal lobe of the brain. Particularly when we habitually go against it. And the frontal lobe of the brain begins to go down in circulation and in activity. And that's why when we do it again, and we do it yet again, it doesn't, it doesn't make you feel as guilty. And of course, guilt, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, appropriate guilt is a good thing. In fact, the Holy Spirit works in that manner, according to Christ. Christ said when the Holy Spirit would come, he would first convict. Now, what is a convict? A convict is someone who is declared guilty. So the first thing the Holy Spirit comes to you and tells you is that you are guilty. And there's some people in pop psychology that think all guilt is bad. And so we'll do anything to avoid guilt. You'll see that in today's young person uh, in particular. Often they subscribe often to that pop psychology. And so they'll use defense mechanisms. They'll blame others. They'll make you think that it's not near as bad because you don't understand their circumstances, etc. And they're trying to get themselves to feel less guilty in the process. But in that whole process, who might they be shoving away? Yeah, if it's appropriate guilt, they're actually shoving away the voice of the Holy Spirit, which is the change agent who can really help them uh, to change for the better, uh, long-term and otherwise. And Saul, when he was pointed out how he was only partially obeying the commandments of God, what did he do? He began to justify himself. And he said, well, look at all the things I have done for the Lord. How come you're just looking at this? You know, the, these are other things that I've done for the Lord, and you're just, uh, you know, you're, you're just focusing in on the one thing that I didn't do. And he said that it was unfair. He thought he was being treated unfairly. And then when the consequences of his actions fully met him in the face, then he repented. But it wasn't a heartfelt, deep repentance meant to change him for the better. It was actually a repentance to try to get him out of the consequences. And then he continued to fester and continued to think about how unfair it was. The, he thought the punishment didn't meet the crime. And is life going to be fair? There's always going to be unfair things in life. 
But was Saul's punishment fair? It was. How do we know? It came from God, the righteous judge. It was a fair punishment. And so often people are thinking things are unfair when they're actually fair. And of course, that's even more dangerous. Uh, and Saul continued to think about the unfairness. But how it all started out was by partially obeying the commandments of God. Second, stressful life events with multiple wars and his knowledge that the monarchy would be eventually taken from him and his family and given to someone else. Focusing in again on that punishment, but also with the stress involved. And then this one is not as intuitive. A high self-esteem that was wounded by the people's and especially the women's obvious preference for another leader. You remember Saul was the tall, good-looking one. And these are not just old ladies that are singing this song. These are the young women of Israel, many of them single, many of them beautiful, and they've come together and produced this beautiful, rousing choir as the soldiers are marching back home to Jerusalem, singing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Paul, Saul, had developed this sense of pride. And as a result of that high self-esteem that he had developed, his pride was what? Wounded. And you know, whenever someone has low self-esteem, it didn't start out that way. It starts out often with high self-esteem, thinking that you're better than others. And then when that pride is wounded, that's when you start getting into those feelings of worthlessness and things of that nature. And that's why uh, a Christ himself, you know, Christ, did he have a lot of stress in his life? And was he ever, did, did a lot of people actually say a lot of good things about Christ when he was on this earth? Actually, quite a few. I mean, at times, I mean, he had throngs of people coming out to hear him speak. And, you know, the, the uh, people in the synagogue, they'd be there to speak, and there'd be a few people there. But Christ would go out in the hills, and he would be thronged. And people would be talking about all the good that he was doing. Ellen White says something in Desire of Ages. He was never elated by applause. Never elated by applause. And as a result of that, he was never dejected by censure. So never elated by applause and thus never dejected by censure. That's why he could go to the cross and uh, be as humiliated. I mean, it wasn't something that he sought for, but realizing that this was God's plan, he could do that and not be dejected by censure and willingly go through that. And that's because he didn't develop that sense of pride uh, that was there. There's a... Um, Pride is actually, well, the reason why we have seven, there's ten cognitive distortions. Pride is magnification. Is not this great Babylon which I have built? Who asked that? Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's pride was so severe, it didn't take just an eight-week depression recovery program to help him out. It was a, how long a program was his? Seven-year program. And by the way, the Lord put him on the program that he always uses for depression. He first put him on a lifestyle program. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And that is, he first put them on raw green vegetables. Uh, and not only did he eat raw plant foods, but he also had to exercise to get those foods. And so there was exercise as part of it. Uh, he also had to get his circadian rhythms back in line. It was the light, dark cycles. So he's producing melatonin. He was getting that serotonin in the daytime. And besides that, the Bible also states right in that same chapter that he underwent another type of lifestyle therapy to help him out. Do you remember what it was? It was the, and in fact, it actually says this, the dew of heaven. What's dew? That's water. So he underwent water treatments. Hydrotherapy uh, was part of, the, part of the treatment that Nebuchadnezzar had. And after that lifestyle treatment, then the Lord was able to come and give him the cognitive behavioral therapy he needed, and the pride was done away with. And as a result of that pride not being done away with, Nebuchadnezzar was converted. Ne uh, chapter 4 of Daniel is Nebuchadnezzar's own conversion story. And it's clear he was converted by his appeal at the end. It wasn't a coercive uh, aspect that occurred in Daniel chapter 3, but it was just an appeal to the heart. Uh, I will exalt myself above the Most High. Who had that cognitive distortion? That was the first sin, uh, Lucifer. And... Uh, there is a book written by William Backus. I don't know, do we have that book here? Jill is uh, here. William, uh, Jill says we have the book here. William Backus, who's a clinical psychologist, um, wrote a book, uh, What Your Counselor Never Told You, The Seven Sins That Lead to Mental Illness. And the first sin that he talks about that leads to mental illness is a sin of pride, and he gives you a test as to see whether you might have it or not. Trying to be noticed, craving attention. Have you ever wondered uh, why the tattoo industry has exploded in this country? Why the jewelry industry has exploded? Underneath it all is that trying to be noticed, craving attention, and the reason for that, pride. Itching for compliments, needing to be important, detesting the idea of being submissive, loathing the idea of admitting, to wrongdoing, strongly opinionated, being argumentative, demanding your way, wanting control over others, flaunting your individual rights, refusing advice, being critical yet resenting criticism, being oversensitive, thinking you have excellences you don't have. If you have any of those, he says, watch out, and particularly if you have two or more, pride is there, and what will soon follow eventually is wounded pride. And when that wounded pride hits, that's when depression and lack of frontal lobe function becomes more manifest, and even the consideration of suicide would not have started had it not been for pride coming in first. Philippians says, let nothing be done through strife or what? vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem what? Other better than themselves. Uh, this is not the self-esteem pop psychology that's actually now been proven to not really help anybody. Now, there is a sense of self-worth. In fact, one of the seminars that's going on, I was speaking to one of the seminar attendees in the back that's going on here at this, is helping you to develop a sense of self-worth, which is actually based where? It's based in Christ. And, of course, it goes like this. Uh, who is Christ? 
Who would you say he is? Son of God? How much is he worth? Everything. Priceless. Did he or did he not give his life for you? And if he did, then how much are you worth? That's right. Priceless. Everything. And so our sense of worth is not based in ourselves. It's based in we know that we are a value because Christ died for us. And so there's a difference between self-worth and self-esteem. Self-esteem says that you're better than somebody else. And actually, if Christ is of infinite value, and we have that same value, infinity is not greater than infinity. Last time I took math, infinity is equal to infinity. It's never greater than. Uh, and so uh, that means that you are not of greater value than anybody else. And actually, it's better to esteem others better than ourselves to have that spirit of humility. And notice the difference, actually, between Saul and Moses. Moses, did he make mistakes? Yes. And did he make a pretty serious mistake near there? Serious enough that he could not, he had to be like the others who died in the wilderness and couldn't go into the promised land. And when he was given that punishment, is there any indication that Moses whined or complained about it or thought that the punishment didn't meet the crime? He fully accepted it. Never once did he go back to the Lord and say, why, I've led these people, look what I've done, I've done all this, and, you know, take a look at what I have done, please, can I go? Never once. He fully accepted the punishment and humility, learned from it, he grew as a result of that. And then what did he end up with? Something far better. He didn't know it at the time, but the Lord had something far better prepared for Moses. And as a result of him accepting the path that the Lord was leading him, uh, how better the result? When trials arise that seem unexplainable, we should not allow our peace to be spoiled. This is uh, Christ Object Lessons. However unjustly we may be treated, let not passion arise. By indulging a spirit of retaliation, who do we injure? We injure ourselves. We destroy our own confidence in God and grieve the Holy Spirit. And so lack of frustration tolerance is one of the things that leads to suicide. We call it LFT, low frustration tolerance. And low frustration tolerance also always starts as a result of magnifying yourself and magnifying the problems really in your life. Uh, part of uh, as people that are suicidal, they get into the I can't stand it. Did you know that there's only one thing a human being cannot stand? And that's death. Everything else they can stand. But when they tell themselves they can't stand it, they're magnifying it. And it's actually not true. There's a little song. I had to teach my boys this uh, when they were growing up. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's okay. It's okay. I can stand it anyway. I can stand it anyway. I'm all right. I'm all right. And it's just a simple song. Just because we don't like something doesn't mean we can't stand it. Uh, and uh, these individuals get into that low frustration tolerance. Well, Saul, he underwent the recommended therapy for depression in his day. Did it help? Actually did for a while. It'd make him feel better. What type of therapy was that? Yeah, it was music therapy, that appropriate 
music therapy. However, in time, with the three causes still active and the third cause, wounded pride, becoming even more prominent, he would slip back into fear and depression. He never took care of the underlying causes that was leading him to his emotional distress. Although a great man with wonderful potential, he continued to live a selfish life, never completely obeying God, never giving up his pride for more than a few days. When times would get tough, Saul would desire the blessings of God, notwithstanding his less than complete commitment to God's commandments. He finally went totally against his conscience by consulting with the devil's servant when the Lord did not answer him the way Saul thought he should. And by the way, beware of demanding that the Lord answer you in the way that you have set out for him to answer you. Uh, and that's what uh, Saul did. Under tremendous stress, with his enemies closing in, Saul's sad life ended how? By suicide. And you might say, well, you know, it wasn't the typical suicide. I mean, you know, there was a lot of bad things that were happening to him. But do you know what actually led him to that point? The last thing that led him to that point? Well, it was hopelessness. He didn't know about his son dying yet. Uh, he did have hopelessness, but why did he have that hopelessness? Because of the witch. Exactly right. That witch, did the witch say some true things? Said a lot of true things. In fact, 95% of what that witch said was true. Then there was only 5% that was false. But because the other 95% was true, and he recognized this is what Samuel would have said. Samuel would have said quite a few of those things. But Samuel would have also held out the possibility of Saul turning his life around and changing. And the witch never held out that possibility and said, you are doomed. Was he doomed? He wasn't. If there's life, there's still hope. There was hope for Saul to turn around right there at the very end, but because he had consulted with the wrong spirit, he ended up having his hopelessness, his, his hope taken away from him. And now when it looked like he was going to be subjected to torture, he said, this is it. I'm just going to do myself. And he tried to get his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer wouldn't. And so he ended up killing himself. And, you know, even if we're subjected to significant torture, there may be times in the future when we have our enemies closing in around us and we're going to be taken. Is it the Lord's desire that we just kill ourselves in order to avoid greater pain? No, absolutely not. In fact, even though we may end up being tortured by our enemies and killed by our enemies, just the ability that they have to see a person of fortitude who's connected with God go through death is something that will etch into their souls for the rest of their life. And that's how souls were saved and back in the apostolic times. Uh, people would see apostles die, a torturesome death, and just that experience would help them recognize this is a far different death than what I would have died if I'd have gone through that. And, and to see the connection that they had with the Almighty. Stephen actually won souls as a result of his death. In fact, Paul was one of the ones he ended up winning once Paul became subjected to the truth. And so there may be times when the Lord wants us, when it's actually better for the consequences of sin to be fully seen by those surrounding uh, in order for the, uh, uh, for the benefit, uh, the greater benefit and greater good to take place. All right, another case. This one has to do with the case of emotional reasoning. 
Emotional reasoning goes like this. I feel like a dud, therefore I am a dud. I feel overwhelmed and helpless, thus my problems are impossible to solve. I feel great, and thus I'm on top of the world. I'm invincible. That's emotional reasoning. And emotional reasoning is one of the greatest barriers for people to change their lifestyle uh, as a result. Ecclesiastes 2 tells us of someone who was into emotional reasoning. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy, what? Pleasure. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Solomon said, if someone else is having a good time doing it, I want to try it out because I want to have a good time. And so he talked about how he got into alcohol. He probably got into the opium, the narcotics of his day. He got into pornography and live pornography because he saw pleasure on people's faces when they were doing this and he wanted to try it out. Where did it lead? He says in the same chapter, therefore I what? Hated life for all is vanity of vexation of spirit. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair. Solomon went into severe deep depression. And you know, when people get into the pleasure cycle, they first do things to alter the way they feel so that they're more so they get more pleasure. They first do it to get high. But after they repeat it, does it produce that same sense of highness? No, after it's repeated time and time again, pretty soon they're doing it just to get up to neutral. And in between times, there's a deep distressing sense of deprivation and despair and bad thoughts and depressive thoughts, even though there's nothing depressing happening in their life. It's a despicable place to be when you feel depressed and nothing is depressing going on around you. But that's where this cycle leads to, and it's one of the greatest reasons. We talked in the last hour about the frontal lobe of the brain, one of the greatest reasons why we're seeing frontal lobe suppression like we haven't seen before, and also where it leads. That's why Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote it to young people to warn them of not taking his course because of where... Uh, it would lead. Many envied the popularity and abundant glory of Solomon, thinking that of all men, he must be the what? Most happy. Solomon, even in the midst of all this, people would look at him and say, man, if I could just have what he has. The wealthiest man in the world, beautiful gardens, a beautiful palace, any beautiful woman that he desires, he's got to be the happiest person on earth. She says this, but amid all that glory of artificial display, the man envied is the one to be what? Most pitied. Now we could put some other people in that example just in this last year. One of the individuals that was most envied in this world was Michael Jackson. That's right. Envied as the king of music, the king of pop, and the wealthiest individual in regards to record sales and he was envied I mean he was adored obviously because they couldn't quit talking about him after he died I mean it's obviously where where the world was they were envied they uh, they envied the popularity and abundant glory of Michael Jackson thinking of all men he must be the what the most happy but the man most envied is the one to be what most pitied. 
Did Michael Jackson have a happy life? Absolutely not. It was a miserable life. And it was a life where he couldn't get any peace. He couldn't get any rest. And he was trying to find it in all the wrong ways. He was trying to alter the way he felt by all the wrong ways of altering the way you feel. And finally, none of it would work. He even turned to some things that could have a potential benefit of helping. I don't know if you heard some of the testimonies, but Michael Jackson, in his preparation, part of the thing is he was running out of money, you know, a billionaire running out of money. And so he needed to try to get more production. So he needed to get out there on the circuit and start his singing again. But in order to do that, he had to have enough energy to do it. And he was on all these drugs, et cetera, to alter the way he was feeling. So he had to withdraw himself from some of those drugs. And in that withdrawal process, he couldn't contain any rest, any peace whatsoever. And he even turned to what helped Saul. He turned to classical music. The people that were close to him said he didn't want to listen to anything, rock and roll or anything like that. He wanted to get something that was going to help his brain. So he was trying to turn to classical music. He was trying to turn to things. He wouldn't perform that, of course, uh, when he was going out. He was performing something far different. But he was getting his uh, attempt at rest in all the wrong areas. And then we can also think of the most envied sports person on the planet. Tiger Woods has made more money doing his sport than any other individual in the history of sports. And you know, when you think about it, here's the one who made almost a billion dollars. And how happy is he? Yes, he's not. I mean, he was, he, he tried to pay her $55 million to stay with him for just two more years. And his, his wife. And of course, people envied because of his wife, because of all of this money, all of this stuff that's there. Again, it's a, it's a sign that money does not lead to happiness. His countenance is dark with despair, speaking of Solomon. All the splendor about him is but to him a mockery of his distress and anguish of his thoughts as he reviews his misspent life and seeking for happiness through indulgence and selfish gratification of every desire. And so these people do apply to Uh, people today and help us to realize this is not the way to happiness. The way to happiness is by changing our thoughts into what's true. And our way of happiness, of course, the way of doing that is by accepting Christ and following Christ's teachings. By his own bitter experience, Solomon learned the emptiness of a life that seeks in earthly things its highest good. Gloomy and soul-harassing thoughts troubled him night and day. For him, there was no longer any joy of life or peace of mind. And the future was dark with despair. Fortunately, Solomon turned around. His depression helped him to turn around, but also the voice of a prophet came and told him the kingdom was going to be taken away from him. And following the voice of the prophet and realizing where his left went, He turned his life around in the end. Was he as happy as he could have been if he wouldn't have been involved in this? No, we're told that he never really experienced the joy and happiness that he could have easily experienced had he not gotten involved with this. But for years of going along in the wrong way, he at least got out of the despair mode, but he still didn't get into that full happiness mode. But after he got out of the despair mode, he wrote the book Ecclesiastes to warn young people. Any addictive way is a false way of altering the way you feel. You can never get enough of what you don't need because what you don't need will never satisfy you. And this is why 
Tiger Woods thought, you know, one, one should be enough. Well, wait a minute. No, he couldn't get, it wasn't just one, it was two. And, you know, the interesting thing about this is I know one of the ones in Las Vegas, when she found out there was another one in New York, she was very upset at Tiger because she thought she was the only one besides his wife. And I'm thinking, she's upset because of the one in New York. But you can never get enough of what you don't need. What you don't need will never satisfy you because these are false ways of altering the way you feel. There was a study done at University of Wisconsin on pornography. Exposure, the effects for six weeks. These were in college-age kids who had never been exposed to it. Both men and women were exposed for six weeks. And after the end of six weeks, less interested and less attracted to their partner if they had one, more self-absorbed, less empathy for others around them. And they began to live in a very self-centered world and they began to shut down. I copied this from another slide. Began to shut down. How? Emotionally shut down uh, as a result. Doing it to get high, but in the end, doing it just to get numb because emotionally they were shutting down. There's, here's the um, Zillman and Bryant, both experimental psychologists, uh, did the study. In fact, Zillman uh, says this afterwards. The negative effects of pornography, here's his statement. The negative effects of pornography on the frontal lobe of the brain have been more consistently proven than the links between smoking and lung cancer. And so... Solomon's way is not the way. In fact, this is what, the reason why I'm talking about this, this is what happens to these soldiers in Iraq. You know, when they're lonely, guess what they're being exposed to freely? Yes, it's the pornography element. In fact, there are even playboy girls going over there and performing for them as part of the, the, the military a type of exercises. And we're seeing suicide rates at an all-time high. NPR had a feature where the, the guy was looking at Playboy, put the Playboy magazine down, had a gun by him, and just direct uh, right to the throat, instant death. And the guy was sitting right next to him as he was looking at the Playboy magazine. The effects are, are uh, very much there in regards to suppressing the frontal lobe of the brain. James says, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by his own evil feelings. And the problem is feelings can lie. When we get these type of feelings, instead of just acting on them and have our life driven by feelings, we need to elevate those feelings to the level of our consciousness and remind ourselves in regards to what is true. Jonathan Martinson says, feelings are much like waves. We can't stop them from coming, but we can choose which one to serve. <laughs> and of course, we choose on the basis of what is true. Another story of someone who was suicidal in the Bible. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough, O Lord, take away my, you can see again, I copied this from another presentation, it's not quite there. And who is this? Uh, well, Jonah, there's a verse similar to this in Jonah, but this one is, comes from Kings. So where is this? Elijah. Now was Elijah doing things against his conscience like Saul? Was he doing things for the sake of pure pleasure, like Solomon? No. But yet he became suicidal. 
When Elijah was depressed and wanted to die, what did the Lord ask him? The Bible says, It was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in and the entering into the cave, and behold, there came a voice unto him and said four words. What doest thou here? And you know, whenever you are feeling depressed and lonely and down and starting to feel hopeless, it's a good four-word question to ask yourself. Uh, Let me... um, I was going to get into that four-word question. I will here in a little bit. But Elijah, what type of program was he put on? He was put on a lifestyle program, too. If you remember, the angels came and fed him food. I think there was some flaxseed in that meal. Uh, It was high in omega-3. We know it had a lot of energy because he was able to, on that one meal, go 30 more days. And he exercised. Exercise was a part of it. And he tried to isolate himself in this cave in darkness, but the Lord tried to get him out into the light. You know, earthquakes, fires, come on. Uh, (laughs) Elijah, get out of the cave. You need to be in the light. And then after putting him on this lifestyle uh, approach and lifestyle therapy, he then gave him cognitive behavioral therapy and began asking him questions. And, And Elijah began to repeat back things that were distorted. It was Elijah's own distorted thoughts that had led him into depression. And uh, in fact, you know, when you go through the history, Elijah had always waited upon the Lord. When he went to the brook Cherith, the Lord told him to go there. The brook Cherith, eventually what happened to it? It dried up. Did Elijah go away after that? Or did he wait for the Lord's word first? The brook dried up and Elijah's still there until the Lord tells him to move. Then the Lord tells him to move to Jezreel, Jezebel's home country. And in Jezebel's home country, he becomes, he gets on a better diet. You know, at the brook Cherith, he wasn't a plant-based vegetarian. But in Jezreel, it was clear he was a plant-based vegetarian. The Lord was trying to advance him, get him ready for Mount Carmel. But he still wasn't ready, even after that diet, until he had lived with a contentious woman successfully. (laughs) And so if the Lord has put contentious people in your life, you need to praise him. He's trying to get you ready for Mount Carmel's. And Elijah, when the woman lashed out at him and said, you're the reason why my son died, I would have been tempted to give that woman some truth therapy on the spot. (laughs) But Elijah didn't do that. What did he do? He humbly took it to the Lord. And when the Lord saw how he treated that contentious woman, he said, all right, you're ready for Ahab now. And so he was ready for Ahab and went through that whole exercise in the way the Lord wanted him to. And he runs and leads Ahab through that rain, and the next morning he hears from Jezebel that he's going to be dead in 24 hours. What does Elijah do? Does he wait on the Lord? He runs. He runs to save his life, and 30 days later, he's asking the Lord to take his life. And sometimes when we run to save our own life, we're setting ourselves up for where Elijah ended up. And so we need to really wait and make sure everything that we do, step by step, is based in the Lord. And uh, Elijah had this overgeneralization. He held a hypothesis as a fact rather than a hypothesis. What was his hypothesis? 
He also generalized from too few instances. He ended up saying, I'm the only one that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And he kept repeating it to the Lord. And Elijah was told by the Lord, how many others? 7,000 others that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. What he should have said is, I'm the only one I know of. But <laughs> instead, he knew, just knew that he was the only one. And as Will Rogers says, it's not what we don't know that hurts us so much. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> and Elijah knew something for sure that just wasn't so. Peter also had a tendency to overgeneralize. He thought anyone that was a Gentile wasn't worth sharing the gospel with. The Lord had to give him a dream, did uh, a pretty dramatic dream. Did Peter understand the meaning of it? Yeah, he actually did. Within a few minutes, he was sharing the gospel to a Gentile, and he won a soul because he understood that he was overgeneralizing. Paul, before he became Paul, overgeneralized. Every Christian, he thought, deserved to be killed. Let's talk about a significant overgeneralization. <laughs> What doest thou here? When a person is feeling depressed and wondering whether life is worth living, a legitimate question is, what doest thou here? Are you going against the will of the Lord or against your conscience? Self-examination to see if you've departed from God's plan for your life and are taking the necessary corrective action can restore optimal mental health. Our last story. I don't have it here. Our last story in the Bible comes from the book of Jonah. Jonah became suicidal, and he asked the Lord to take away his life as well. Uh, I thought I had it here, but I think I do. It's just probably uh, further on down. And uh, do you remember what the Lord asked him? First of all, what led Jonah to that condition? Yeah, he started to have some inconveniences in his life, and he also was upset because the Lord didn't get rid of Nineveh. He actually saved it. He, got, he, was, he was upset because the Lord made him a very successful evangelist, essentially. Uh, and, uh, and he wasn't wanting that type of success. Uh, but as a result of the Lord not taking care of Nineveh the way Jonah thought he was going to, and then now having to suffer the inconveniences of significant blistering desert heat, and the only shade that he had was taken away from him, he ends up with his poor coping skills asking the Lord to take away his life. And the Lord asked him a simple question. Doest thou well to be angry? Anger is what led him to that position. And of course, angry is one of, anger is one of the things that leads to suicide today. Those murder suicides, all of those type of, type of suicides, all started out with anger first. And so uh, we don't see how Jonah responded to that cognitive behavioral therapy. We'll have to wait for eternity to see whether Jonah listened to the voice of truth and took care of the underlying reasons that was causing his anger, getting rid of that low frustration tolerance, getting that empathy. You know, he had more empathy for this plant than he had for 120,000 human beings. Uh, and uh, uh, that lack of empathy can also lead uh, to those sorts of things. And then we could study others that actually completed suicide in the Bible. There are several others. I mean, Judas, we could go through step by step of what led him to that point, but his is a typical example of that guilt 
and then recognizing you've done something very wrong that you can't reverse. And instead of going to the foot of the cross and going through that deep humiliation and repentance and change of life, he took the easy way out and just killed himself uh, in the process. And uh, so we need to be careful. There's, uh, as, as human beings sitting here, we might think that none of us is prone to this, these types of things. Uh, some of you may have ne- never had thoughts in that direction. But I can tell you, if you live long enough and if there's bad enough things happen, those type of thoughts can come to faulty human beings. And when they come, the question is, how are you going to uh, deal with them? Are you going to have, give uh, yourself reasons to have hope which is one of the great ways of turning around. And then other things that you can ask individuals in this condition is, have you ever seen the effects of a family on suicide? How many of you have seen the effects, personally, the effects of another family on what's happened to them? The devastating effects. Do you really want to do this to your loved ones? And then some people uh, don't do it because of the moral reasons involved. They recognize if they do it, it's not a sin that they can ask forgiveness of uh, quotes afterwards. And it is, thou shalt not kill as well. And I don't try to talk people out of that line of reasoning. If that's a deterrent, uh, that helps them to eventually have hope uh, as well. And so uh, <coughs> those are, um, are there any, uh, how much uh, time do I have left? Zero time. All right, Don, thank you. I was going to ask for questions, but we will have a question and answer session uh, later on this afternoon to be able to ask questions on this and the frontal lobe as well. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.